Today we're going to have Cindy Quills, uh, that lives in Chicago area, uh, preach to us. She's going to bring a message on atonement that's really going to bless you. I've known Cindy for several years now. Uh, we are friends and I've preached at the meetings or I've preached in a Bible school, or well, not her Bible school, she worked for um, Andrew Womack Ministries and uh, she would have me over at preaching at the Bible school there and just ministering to a lot of folk. She's a wonderful person. She's got a passion for God. Uh, she's a good speaker. She's got a great understanding of the gospel. And um, she is here today to share. Well, now I'm saying she's here today in the studio. She's not here today in the studio. She made a recording uh, earlier. I think it's last week already. Um, and send it to me and uh, we're going to stream that to you today. You're going to be so blessed with this message. It is so good to understand uh, the atonement in the light of the love of God and not in the light of a God that was bloodthirsty, that wanted to punish sin, punish people and, ha and want to take out revenge on people. It is all about a loving father. So um, I would like all of you to welcome Cindy and uh, I trust that you guys are going to be deep. Hello Dynamic Web Church family. It is so good to connect with you through um, video and the miracle of the internet. My name is Cindy Quarles. I reside in the Chicagoland area of the United States and I am one of you guys. I am one of the uh, members of the Web Church family, Dynamic Web Church family, and have been since its inception. I've been following Birdie for many years and like um, all of you, you know, my life has been transformed by the message that Bertie brings to us on a weekly basis and even even more than once a week now uh, via Facebook and, and other, other avenues via the Internet. And so I, along with all of you, I'm just so grateful to you, Bertie, for uh, bringing us this message, for using the Internet to get it to us, uh, for taking your life and really... Um, immersing yourself in in uh, in the Word and in Scripture and in God and and uh, and bringing all of this to us, I, and we are so appreciative and we just thank you so much. Uh, when Bertie was here in the United States in in the Chicagoland area in May, um, we were so honored to host him and had a great time with Bertie here and. Um, want to thank you, Heliana, for letting him come and for sending him to us. We just love that. I know it's a sacrifice for, for the family, too, for Bertie to come for such a long period of time. So I just want to say thank you to the family uh, for, uh, bringing, for allowing Bertie to come and, and sending him to us. Um, so when he was here, uh, during the midst of a conversation uh, that we were having, uh, Bertie asked if I would put together a video on atonement. And of course I said yes, I am very honored to do that and very, very happy to do that. And so um, that's what we're going to talk about here today. We're going to talk about atonement and the, um, the view of atonement that is put forth by most of Western evangelicalism, evangelical Christianity, uh, really worldwide, even so-called grace teaching and preaching churches and ministries hold this view of atonement. Uh, probably and mostly because they have no other view. They've not been taught any other view. If they don't go outside even you know their current Western evangelical way of thinking, they've never heard another view of atonement. The only one they know is the one that they put forth. And so um, we're going to deconstruct that view of atonement and we're going to put forth another view and uh, the reason why I want to do that and I am passionate about this and I'm so thankful that Bertie has asked me to do this is because what I have seen um, in my dealings with people in ministry and Bertie expressed this too is that when people um, people have a hard time a difficulty really trusting God as a loving father even those people who are schooled in the grace message. They know that God loves them. They know that um, He is a good God, that He wants only good for them. But uh, they have a difficult time um, trusting Him 
And I believe that this view of atonement that we are about to deconstruct here is that reason why. It is the pinpoint. If you can go back and pinpoint the reason, I believe this is it um, for, for many, many people. This view of atonement, in my estimation, this long-held belief, and it is entrenched in uh, Western evangelicalism, is also one of the most damaging falsehoods that we've believed about God. And so I am very happy to deconstruct that today. That thing needs to come down. And, um, and, and, other, and another view needs to be put forth. And really what I've been seeing and what I've been reading in books that I've read um, and books that have been published within the last 10 years, that view of atonement, this view of atonement that, that um, ha has been put forth by evangelical Christianity for all of these years, it is quickly and rapidly being replaced by another view. And that's really, those are the two views we're going to talk about today. So, what is the cross all about? How was sin dealt with? What I'm going to do is give you a synopsis of the view held by most Western Evangelical Christianity, and then I'll give you another view and the merits of that, and, um, uh, and I'll also give a brief historical tracing of the currently held and entrenched view, and how that came to us in history. You know, it is, it's, uh, it's important to trace some of our beliefs and see where did they come in and how did they come in and the people who put them forth how were they influenced and who were they influenced by it's just amazing to me how many of our currently held beliefs in evangelicalism can be traced in history and really can be traced back all the way back to uh, pagan Greek philosophy uh, there are so many of our church um, uh, theologians who were influenced by Greek philosophers, and it's it's amazing. But that we can't get into that right now. But um, we are going to do a brief historical tracing of the currently held view of um, of atonement. So, evangelical Christianity's widely held doctrine of atonement typically goes like this. God is holy and cannot look on sin. God is just and his justice demands payment for a wrong. For God to forgive sin, punishment is required because his justice demands it. But God is love. So in order to honor his holiness and satisfy his justice, God, in his love, sent Jesus. Jesus was our substitute. God's wrath was poured out as punishment on Jesus instead of us. Satisfying God's justice and demands for payment. A blood sacrifice was made appeasing God's anger for sin. God can now offer forgiveness for sin because Jesus, as our substitute, met the demands of a holy and a just God. Does that sound familiar? If you have been in Western evangelicalism, if you've been brought up in mainline denominational churches, even in grace teaching and preaching churches, this is the view of atonement that is typically held. It is entrenched in evangelicalism. It is in theological terms referred to as the penal substitution theory of atonement. Penal having to do with penalty or punishment and substitution having to do with instead of. Penal substitution. Penal again having to do with penalty or punishment and substitution having to do with instead of. As I said, again, it's a theory of atonement firmly held by most Western evangelicalism from mainline denominations to so-called independent non-denominational churches and so-called grace teaching and preaching churches and ministries. So let's do a brief historical tracing of penal substitution and see where it came into our doctrine and uh, where it came from. There really is a lot of history leading up to it, and uh, it's more time than what I can take here, but the bulk of this doctrine of atonement came to us from none other than John Calvin. 
Now, if you know anything about church history or you've been brought up in Calvinism or in denominations who uh, purport Calvinism and are based on that, you know that John Calvin is the one who, who from where Calvinism comes from, five-point Calvinism is... Um, is the system that um, that John Calvin um, put forth, and that Calvinism is, you know, a lot of churches are entrenched in Calvinism. Um, it is, in my viewpoint, is probably one of the most demonically inspired systems that has ever been put forth. There, you know, in my experience in ministry. Um, People who have come out of Calvinism, there are young people who have come out of it that were um, afraid to, even though they wanted to be married and have children, they did not want to bring a family and children into the world because of what they've been taught with Calvinism. Because Calvinism teaches, um, you know, the five-point Calvinism pr pretty much says that God has uh, predestined some for salvation, and he has predestined others for eternal conscious torment of hell. Now that is five-point Calvinism, and um, that is the same John Calvin where uh, penal substitution comes from. We're not talking about five-point Calvinism here, but I'm just giving you an idea of John Calvin's um, belief system and how it has really put many people in bondage and torment for many, many years. And that penal substitution, a theory of atonement, also came through John Calvin. So to make a long story short, Calvin, being a lawyer, he was, he was a theologian trained in theology, but he was also trained in criminal law. So being a lawyer in criminal law, John Calvin took Anselm's theory of atonement. Anselm had a theory of atonement that he put forth. Uh, you know, Anselm lived from 1033 to 1109, so um, Anselm's theory of atonement was put, some, was put forth somewhere in that time period, and his theory of atonement was kind of like a feudal lord, that God was kind of like a feudal lord who had and been Anselm's theory of atonement was put, some, was put forth somewhere in that time period, period and his theory of atonement had to be satisfied. So that was the satisfaction theory of atonement that Anselm put forth. Calvin took that theory of atonement and being schooled in theology and in criminal law, his theory of atonement basically said this, that God's legal requirement for justice demands punishment by death for wrongdoing. That was Calvin's theory of atonement. Calvin came along about 500 years after, four or five hundred years after um, Anselm. So around about um, in the 1500s, somewhere around that area, is when this theory of atonement was put forth. So this is a theory of atonement that has been taught since Calvin in our Sunday schools and from our pulpits in Western evangelicalism um, since the 1500s. <laughs> and it got and, and it actually was um, put forth around that time in the 1500s. So this is how it came to us through in in history. There are problems with that um, theory of atonement, and if we take off the legal lens, take off Calvin's legal lens, we can see the problems and the weaknesses in it, and that's what we're going to do right now. <laughs> Um, but so, so let's take that first point that God is holy and cannot look on sin. If we take off that legal lens again, we're going to start to see the weakness in that because I do not see that in how God dealt with Adam in the garden, with fallen men in the garden. I mean, did God throw his, throw his hands up over his face when Adam fell, when Adam stepped out of who he was and where he was? And that's really the... The definition of sin is to miss the mark and not participate in. Those are the two primary definitions of sin. So when Adam determined that he would step out of who he was and try to and be God on his own, on his own merits, 
he stepped out of, so he was missing the mark, he stepped out of his place, and he was no longer participating in who God was and the bliss and the other-centeredness and, the, and the, the, the love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had, had uh, dwelt in for all eternity. Adam was uh, um, participating in that, and when he stepped out of that, he was no longer participating in that. Those, that's the two primary definitions of sin, is missing the mark and not participating in it. So, so, so Adam stepped out of that. So when, when he did that, did God throw his hands up over his face and say, Oh my gosh, they have sinned. I can't go down there. I can't go into that garden now because sin is there and they have sinned. I don't see God doing that. What, what I do see him doing is he came, as he always did, to walk and talk with his man, to walk and talk with Adam. Um, and, and, and when he found him, and God, and God knew what had happened, of course he did. He knew what had happened, but even knowing what had happened and the seriousness of it, he still came looking and talking for, looking for his man to walk and talk with him in the garden. And when he found him hiding in fear, uh, behind a rock or a tree somewhere, um, he, 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 tenderly cared for them. He brought them out. He talked with them about what had happened. He cared for them. He clothed them. That's what I see God doing. And so this thing about God cannot look on sin, uh, that's debunked immediately in the garden because Adam had stepped out of where he was. He had sinned, so to speak. And so, um, but God still came looking for Adam, and he spoke with him, and he cared for him, and he clothed him. We see Abraham. God did God deal with Abraham. You know, Abraham lied. In our definition, lying would be a sin, in the legal definition of, of sin. But yet God... Um, never dealt with Abraham according to that. I mean, when, when we're talking about lying, Abraham lied to two different kings two different times in order to save himself. He put uh, Sarah in a precarious situation in both of those times. And yet, how did God deal with that? God brought, at, brought, brought Abraham out smelling like a rose and called Abraham his friend. <laughs> so, uh, in in the course of... In, in this point of God not being able to look on sin, I don't see that in how God dealt with Abraham. I don't see it in how God dealt with Adam in the garden. What about Jesus? You know, Jesus is God incarnate. This is God become flesh. And this is the one who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, he Jesus must have forgotten that thing about how uh, God not being able to tolerate sin. Because the entire earth and all of mankind was full of sin, and yet Jesus came smack dab into the middle of our darkness, eating and drinking with us. So I don't see God not being able to look on sin in the way God dealt with us with, through Jesus by coming into this world full of sin and darkness, and, and um, being coming one of us, and we're going to talk about that later in identification, and how Jesus became us, becoming one of us, and eating and drinking with us sinners. <laughs> so uh, I don't see God not being able to look on sin. I don't see that in, 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 in Jesus. And what about the Father? You know, John says um, many times that the Father sent the Son. So what was the Father thinking by sending Jesus, who was the second person of the Godhead, sending him into the midst of all this sin uh, that he can't look upon? It just makes no sense. So this thing about God not being able to look upon sin, which is part of and foundational to and one of the pillars of penal substitution, uh, I don't see that. There's, that, that does not stand up. This thing about God being just and justice demanding payment for a wrong, that, that for God to forgive sin, punishment is required because His justice demands it. Again, you know, we have to remove the legal lens and look again. Um, God's justice, God's righteousness, uh, many times in the Old Testament, is a restorative justice. It's a restorative righteousness. 
um, many times righteousness is in the same context and justice is in the same context of raising up those who are bowed down, of delivering the oppressed, of validating and caring for the widows and the orphans, of taking care of the poor, of feeding the hungry, of healing those who, who are sick. And so justice and righteousness in God's eyes are making things right. It is a restorative justice. It is not a retributive justice. And, and um, we've confused that uh, through the law and you know the law was a it was not the point the law is a as a parenthetical phrase it was added we will talk about that a little bit later but god's justice is raising up the about down delivering those who are oppressed and you're going to see that as we get into um uh the other theory of atonement that i'm going to put forth to you but God is love. This is, this is another point of penal substitution. God is love, so in order to honor His holiness and satisfy His justice, God in His love sent Jesus. Now what I see, and the weakness of this point is, that what we are seeing is that God is conflicted, that within God Himself there is a conflict. And what we also see is that the very essence of his being can be altered by something outside of himself. Either by what happened with Adam in the garden, or um, that something outside of God, um, what happened outside of God in the garden uh, with Adam, uh, changed something within God. Or, and therefore something, and therefore the cross and Jesus restoring or God's honor and taking punishment for sin on the cross um, changed something within God. Either of those are saying that the very essence of God's being can be altered by something outside of himself. And that is a weakness in penal substitution theory of the atonement. Um, then other, the other uh, thing about penal substitution is that God, Jesus was our substitute. That God's wrath was poured out as punishment on Jesus instead of us satisfying God's justice that demands payment. Well, uh, you know, the most dysfunctional family that you can imagine on the earth where a parent would take one of their children and torture and torment that child and kill him in order to be able to tolerate the other children and their misbehavior. That would be dysfunction to the max. And we would take that parent and we would um, take the children away from that parent <laughs> and never allow them to be around children again or have any children. Uh, that is just dysfunction to the max. And we don't tolerate that. Even us as um, not God beings, we're not God, we don't tolerate that, and but we but we put that upon God. We say that He poured out His anger on Jesus, Jesus as our substitute, so that we would not have to endure the anger and the wrath of God. That is a weakness in penal substitutionary atonement. This is a description of Jesus's Abba, and I don't think that that is a correct description. And I think you can see the weaknesses in that point of penal substitution. Another point is that the, a blood sacrifice was made appeasing God's anger. Well, there are two times in scripture where it says that God takes no pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices. It was not his prime it was not his preference in how he dealt with Israel, burnt offerings and sacrifices. Um, and it's important for us to note that the Passover lamb, which we attribute Jesus to being the our Passover lamb on the cross, um, and, and I believe that he was that for us, and the Passover lamb was a type and a shadow of Jesus for us. But it is important to note that the Passover lamb was not a sacrifice for sin, but it was a covenant celebration of rescue from the bondage and from bondage and slavery. 
uh, for the Hebrew people, for the Israelites. They, they, that Passover lamb, that they, that very first one, was a was delivering them from bondage and from slavery in Egypt. And every year after, they celebrated that, celebrating their delivery and their freedom from bondage and slavery. And that is important for us to remember for later, because we're definitely going to talk about that a little bit later in our, our second theory of atonement that we're going to present to you. Uh, another point, God can now offer forgiveness for sin because Jesus, as our substitute, met the demands of a holy and a just God. Well, if this is our stance, then what we are saying is that we have concluded that the law is central, that the law has always been the point, and that the law is the overarching message of the Bible. And I think most of us would say that that is not the truth, that that is not true. We would agree that the law is not central, that it is not the overarching message of the Bible, and that it has never been the point. <laughs> it is not, you know, the law was not God's choice. And um, that would take more time here than we have here to explain. But the law was not God's choice. It was not his preference. It was Israel's choice. Um, it was added and God worked with what he had to work with so that he could fulfill his covenant with Abraham it, that through him and his seed all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. As Bertie says a lot, there is much to say about that and we don't have time here to go into that. But the law is not central, it is not the overarching message of the Bible and it has never been the point. <laughs> so that is a weakness in penal substitution in that God can forgive sin now because Jesus was our substitute. No, Jesus was not our substitute, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But when we say this, what we're saying is that the law has always been the point, and it's not. But, you know, even working from, a, from the legal context and the legal paradigm that the penal substitution works from, even in working from that, I fail to see any logic in payment and forgiveness. This is another weakness in penal substitution. Because, you know, if I were, well, let's just say this, if, if you had a great debt, you owed a big, big, a large, large debt to the bank, and I come along and I pay that debt for you, can the banker then come to you and say that uh, your debt has been forgiven, that he has forgiven your debt? No, he can't, can he? Absolutely not, because I paid that debt. And that is uh, the weakness in penal substitution because there is no forgiveness in payment and there is no payment in forgiveness. They negate one another. Um, you know, and so, so that makes no sense in penal substitution. There is no logic in that. There is no, if something is paid, then it is not forgiven. If something is forgiven, then no, no payment needs to be made. And so that is another weakness in penal substitution. And, and, and this is the one point, I believe, that hinders Christians at a heart level from trusting God. Because even in the legal standpoint, the legal paradigm of penal substitution, um, the definition of forgiveness is distorted because we're working from within this legal paradigm, number one, but even within that paradigm, there's no forgiveness um, if there was payment. And so there's no wonder that there's confusion in the hearts of people, and people can't fully trust God. <laughs> I hope I made that clear, because it, it sounds confusing even, even within the legal paradigm. So, now that we have deconstructed penal substitution, let the reconstruction begin. I am going to present another view of atonement that I believe is in more in line with the true nature and character of God is supported by scripture and it was what was taught by the early church fathers. It got distorted along the way as we talked about in the historical retracing that we did 
um, that came through Anselm of Canterbury, who was heavily influenced by Roman Catholicism, and then through John Calvin, who was heavily influenced um, through the law and the legal system, being trained in criminal law, but also being a theologian. And somehow he fused those two things together. And that's how we've got penal substitution theory of atonement that we've been preaching since, um, you know, 500-something, or 1500-something. So, uh, I'm going to restate a previous point as we get, as we move forward here in this um, um, next theory of atonement that I want to present to you. Um, and that previous point that I want to restate is that if we have determined that God is working from a legal standpoint in the atonement, then we have concluded that the law is central, that it has always been the point, and that the law is the overarching message of the Bible. And I believe you and I, brothers and sisters, realize and understand, and most thinking people who can see the larger picture realize that the law was never the point and that it is not the overarching message of the Bible. However, if we think and we reason from the platform of God as Father, as the one from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, which we, which we read in Ephesians chapter 3, if we realize that we are created in His image and His likeness, if we are thinking and reasoning from the standpoint of family, that we are His offspring, that he is the father who so loved the world that he gave Jesus. That he gave him in order to satisfy the great and the wonderful and the intense love with which he loved us. Which uh, Ephesians 2, 4 in the Amplified Version, that's the way it puts it. In order to satisfy the great and the wonderful and the intense love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our shortcomings and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, in union with Christ. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. I'm really kind of getting ahead of myself. But when we see and we look from the standpoint and reason from the standpoint of God as Father, then we will begin to see atonement in another way and for what it really is. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives a poignant description in Galatians and Romans of the entire world in bondage to sin. The entire cosmos in bondage to sin and to death, because sin and death go hand in hand. You know, what he really is, is saying to us there, especially in Romans 7, um, and I think Bertie teaches this so well, that God's man was stolen, that God's beloved was in bondage to sin, that we had been kidnapped in a sense, we had been taken into slavery and we were being held captive. Now a father, if, if any father or, or mother or any parent who can imagine their child being kidnapped and being sold into slavery, into bondage of any kind, can know that they will do whatever it takes to get that child back. They will sell everything they have. They will give their very lives if necessary to free their child from, from, from that bondage. And thinking from that standpoint and realizing God as our Father, we realize that that is exactly what He did and that is exactly how He saw us. We were uh, enslaved, held captive by uh, sin and death. And He did whatever it would take to get us out, to free us from that bondage. So... Jesus did become a sacrifice then for our sin, but not in the sense of a sacrifice to appease an angry God. Not as a blood sacrifice to appease and, um, um, and as punishment for our sin or to appease an angry God, but a sacrifice in the sense of a self-giving sacrifice um, uh, and other-centered self-giving love that he had for the world. You know, he took the sin of the world upon himself. He freed us from sin by dying with it. Um, we were held in, uh, in bondage to it, and 
Uh, what held us in bondage died with Jesus when Jesus died. We were enslaved to sin, and Jesus took that sin upon himself, and he died with it. That is a beautiful, self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And in, and in that sense, yes, Jesus was a sacrifice for our sin. Praise God. Amen. That is, that is the heart of God. You know, that is a self-sacrificing love, willing to give himself for the rescue of all mankind. And in that sense, absolutely, Jesus was a sacrifice for sin. And the Father also willing to offer his son in order to rescue their beloved. You know, this was really an occurrence within God himself. Second uh, Corinthians 5.19, which is one of my favorite scripture and really my life scripture, says that it was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Amplified says it was God personally present in Christ reconciling and, and restoring the world to himself. Now, I think it's important to realize what it does not say. You know, this was not uh, an occurrence outside of God to change something within God himself. Because God does not need changing. We had to be changed. We were reconciled to the world, not God reconciled to us. It was God personally present in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So this was an occurrence within God to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in order to free us and to rescue us and to reconcile us to God. It was not something outside of God in order to reconcile God to us, in order to change something within God uh, so that he could tolerate us now, so that, we could, so that he could now somehow look upon us free from sin. No. It was God reconciling and rescuing us so that we could be reconciled to God, freedom, freedom, freeing us from the bondage and the slavery of sin. It was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Hallelujah. <laughs> and now we are made the righteousness of God. But righteousness being what? Again, righteousness being everything as it should be. Righteousness being restorative. Righteousness being freedom from oppression. Freeing the oppressed. Freeing those who are bowed down. Um, validating the widows and the orphans, so to speak. Those who are uh, in bondage in some way. That is righteousness in God's eyes. We were made the righteousness of God. It is now everything as it should be. It was God in Christ reconciling us to himself. Hallelujah. This is awesome. This is good, good news. And so true forgiveness now. We have true forgiveness. Not forgiveness in a legal sense and in a legal standpoint, but but true forgiveness in God's vocabulary. Um I'm going to read for you uh, what forgiveness is in God's vocabulary. I'm going to look aside here to my computer um, so that I make sure that I get it right. But Vine's Expository Dictionary defines forgive in this way. It means to send away, to set free. To send away, to set free. It, forgiveness in Vine's is defined this way, a release from bondage and imprisonment. Forgiveness means a release from bondage and imprisonment. So this is forgive in God's vocabulary. We were released from the bondage and imprisonment and enslavement of sin. We were forgiven. Hallelujah. Released. So John the Baptist said it this way. I mean, he saw when he saw Jesus, he said this. He said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes away the sin of the world. That is forgiveness in God's vocabulary. Again, I'm going to read uh, the definition of forgive and forgiveness in Vine's Expository Dictionary. Forgive means to send away, to set free. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To set free. Uh, forgiveness means a release from bondage and imprisonment. We have been forgiven because we have been set free uh, from 
Uh, we have forgiveness because we've been set free from bondage and imprisonment, and we have been forgiven because sin has been sent away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is forgiveness in God's vocabulary. Hallelujah. And this is a good place to restate what I, um, what I said before, that the first Passover lamb and the, yearly, uh, and the yearly celebration thereafter was not a sacrifice for sin, but it was a covenant meal and a celebration of rescue from bondage and slavery. Hallelujah, that is forgiveness. We've been set free, we've been rescued from bondage and slavery. And so the cross, my brothers and sisters, was not a punishment for sin. It was, it was never a legality in God's eyes. It was a, the cross was a rescue. It was a rescue from the bondage of sin and death. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. So, We've talked about the punishment part, the penal part of penal substitution. Let's talk about the substitution part of penal substitution. Was Jesus our substitute? And I say no to that. He was not our substitute. There's no power in substitution, but there is power in identification. And that is what we're going to talk about next. You know, Hebrews 2 describes for us that Jesus became us. He became fully us. And we see that in, in the Gospel of John, how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, the, the Hebrew says that Jesus didn't become an angel because we were not angels. We were flesh and blood. And so he became flesh and blood. He had fully identified with us, and that was necessary to bring us out and to rescue us. So God did what it was what was necessary to rescue us from the bondage and the slavery of sin and what was necessary was that he become us and that he identify with us in every way. Again, you know, um uh the gospel of John says in the beginning um was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, if we go into and dig into the original language of that, what we see is that Jesus became our tent mate. He, he pitched his tent among us and became our tent mate. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us and became our tent mate. And he identified with us fully in every way. You know, we realize and we see in the life of Jesus that he had friends, he had family, he went to parties, he ate, he drank, he got hot, he got cold, he got hungry, he got tired, he wept. He became us. He was just like us in every way. He lived our life. And he died our death. <laughs> and in doing so, he took our sin upon him, and when he died, sin died. Hallelujah. Sin died when Jesus died. And that is how we were freed from the bondage of sin. Hallelujah. And that is very good news in itself. But that's not the end. You know, there is more. And we all know what that more is. God raised him from the dead. But when we realize that God became us, that Jesus was just like us, that he identified with us in every way, and that as a man he died our death, and with him he took sin with him, then we understand that as a man he was raised up. It was a human that was resurrected from death. And it was a human that conquered death, hallelujah, for us. Jesus conquered death as a man. He was resurrected as a man. He died our death. Amen. He was raised up as us. He was resurrected as a man. And there is more, even more to this, that as a human, he ascended to heaven. It was a human being that ascended into heaven. You know, the incarnation, God become flesh, did not end with Jesus' death. 
<laughs> I love what Garrett Scott Dawson says. He expresses it in his book, Jesus Ascended. And he, he says it this way. He said, um, I want to make sure I get it right here. He says, the Godhead is not stripped of humanity, but, he, but adorned with it. The Godhead is not stripped of humanity, but adorned with it. That sounds like the heart of an adoring father to me. So when Jesus died and when he was resurrected and when he ascended, the, the incarnation continued. The incarnation is an eternal thing. It is, it, is, it, it is always going to be. There is always going to be a man seated at the right hand of God. There is a, a, in the second person of the Godhead is a man and will forever be a man. This is the power of identification. We're talking about substitution versus identification. Jesus was not our substitute. He fully identified with us, and that is where the power is. Hallelujah. We're going to um, talk about that a little bit more. You know, I love what um, Karl Barth said. He said that God has chosen to not be God apart from humanity. That is something to think about and to ponder on. God has chosen to not be God apart from humanity because what, what has happened here is when God determined to become flesh, he would be that for all eternity. The second person of the God has, is a man, and he will forever be a man. And that is identification. Jesus was not our substitute, and he did not die as our substitute, and he was not resurrected as our substitute, and he was not ascended as our substitute. He died as us. He resurrected as us. He ascended as us, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father as us. Hallelujah. You know, Paul, the apostle, uh, understood identification and union like really no other writer of the New Testament. And they were central to his gospel. Galatians 2.20 says this, and I'm going to read, um, allow me to look at my computer here and read this for us. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I was crucified with Christ. Jesus did not die as our substitute. Jesus died as us. And therefore, I was crucified with Christ. This is the, the power of identification. And this is really why there is no power uh, in penal substitution. And that is why there is no power in the evangelical church. I'm sorry, excuse me, sorry to be so blunt, but that is just the way it is. Romans 6 verses 1 through 8, I'm going to read this because we're talking about identification and Paul understood identification and union. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We, we who are, are those who have died to sin, how can we live any longer in it? Or... Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Hallelujah. For if we have been united with him, in a death like his, this is identification and not substitution, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We were also raised up with him. And this physical body will be raised up. Hallelujah. Just like his physical body was raised up. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is identification, hallelujah, and not substitution. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Have you died? 
Yes, you have died. I have died. Why? Because Jesus fully identified with us. And in that solidarity and in that identification, you and I died. How can we be set free from sin? Because we have died to sin. Just like Paul says here, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. But if we see our, if we see Jesus as our substitute, that he died instead of us, then we will not see ourselves free from sin. And that is why there is no power in penal substitution. Now, if we died with Christ, which we did in our identification with him, we believe that we will also live with him. And yes, we do live with him. Hallelujah. Praise God. So I hope you see the power of identification that Christ fully identified with us. And therefore, we can fully identify with him and we can experience all that he is in the here and now. And I'm going to read Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 6 to uh, solidify that. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is a here and now reality. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now that is full identification. That is not substitution. Hallelujah. Identification and union are a far cry from substitution. Jesus was our substitute only in the sense that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. To say that he experienced anything instead of us and not as us, fully identifying with us, eliminates completely the power in identification and union. And that is where the power is, is in identification and union. Jesus said, not suffer and die as our substitute. He died, he resurrected, he ascended, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father as us. There is a man seated in the Godhead as a second part of the Godhead and he is fully identified with us and we fully identify with him. Hallelujah. That is the power of identification. Praise God. Hallelujah. So we have talked about penal punishment and we have talked about substitution and um, we have debunked those, deconstructed that and we have reconstructed it with, um, with rescue with a rescue from the bondage of sin and slavery and with identification. And those two things go hand in hand, really. We were rescued because Jesus fully identified with us. But when Jesus died, sin died. And we know we also died with him. We have been free. We have been set free from the bondage and the slavery of sin and death because Jesus, who identified with us fully, died as us and sin died with him. Hallelujah. That is the power of uh, rescue and identification. And so I hope that you can see uh, the differences in the two and I hope that you uh, that I've made it really clear the differences in the two and that you can see the power of rescue and identification and really begin to put forth this classic view of the gospel. I believe this is the classic gospel. And this is the gospel that we take to the world. This is the good news that we teach and we preach. And this is the gospel that they are hungry for. And so this is, hallelujah, what I am preaching. I hope you take it and you preach it everywhere you go and that you can see the freedom in uh, identification and rescue. Hallelujah. And you teach and preach that gospel. And that it really helps you in uh, your understanding of God as a father whom you can fully trust. He is fully trustworthy. Hallelujah. Thank you so much for letting me share with you. It has been my privilege and my pleasure, and I have been fully blessed by this message. I hope you have too.